Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Um, as we were singing, I was just struck by this strong desire to open my message this morning by saying these words. Jesus is risen from the dead. He loves you. And there is no coldness of your heart that he cannot warm up. And there is no stain in your heart that he cannot wash clean. There is no pain he cannot heal. There is no sorrow in your heart he cannot turn into joy. Even your greatest life-defining regrets can be made new because Jesus is alive. And today, we're meeting in this building only because of that. There's no other excuse for us to be together other than that that great hope calls us together. And if we don't have that hope, television is way more fun than me talking. Amen? (laughs) Stay home and watch TV, right? This is our great hope. This is why we gather. And if you're forgetting that, I'm going to pray for us right now that God would remind us. Help us to remember. Let's pray. Jesus, you are not still in the tomb, and our lives are not encased in stone, unchanging. Our hearts can change. Our lives can change. We can be free. We can come alive because of you. And whatever else we may be groaning under the weight of, you are greater than everything that is stacked on top of us. Help us to remember that. And help us to come alive this morning in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning again, and if you are new to our church, my name is Dave. It's my privilege to serve here as pastor, and uh, we've been working our way through a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. And the Sermon on the Mount is something that is very familiar to many of us, but for over 20 years, I put off preaching from it because it's a sermon that Jesus himself preached, and... uh, um, I was really intimidated by this idea that I would stand in front of other people and try to expound on a sermon which Jesus himself preached. I was so weighed down by a desire not to get that wrong, to really grasp and understand the heart of Jesus. And I want to go back to the title of this series, which is Radical, because that word means a lot of things in our culture today. Usually it just means really intense. When you hear the word radical, you've got to kind of have your tongue hanging out. Radical. It's like everything dialed up to 11. That's not what we mean by radical. But radical, we remember, we think more like a radish, the roots, the foundation of a thing. That when Jesus preached the sermon, he wasn't trying to give us moral teaching that makes us a nicer version of who we are. But he was trying to raise up a whole new kind of human being who would show the people in this world a glimpse of the kingdom that he was bringing, a whole new way of living, a radically different way of approaching life under the rule of a great king who loves us, that our lives would be explained by our response to his great authority and his benevolent rule, that we would be completely different from the inside out. That was his goal. And I want to remind us of that today as we approach a passage that I think is incredibly familiar. I would say that the vast majority of the people outside of the religious circles, outside of the church, are very familiar with this passage as well. John, could I ask you to do me a big favor and bring me the clicker? Um, I had a senior moment and left it there. Thank you. Thanks a lot, John. It took you only one step to get here. It would have taken me like six. All right. Well, we're going to look at the golden rule. How many of you know what the golden rule is? I I read uh, somewhere this week that the adult version is the golden rule is the one where the gold makes the rules. 
And the children's version is, do one to others before they do one to you. <laughs> That's not the golden rule, of course. Here's what the golden rule is. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Let me read that again. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Religion seems to be hardwired into the human spirit. For as long as human history has been recorded, mankind has been obsessed with discovering our creator, asking big questions about the meaning of life. At least the people who are paying attention are asking these things. Some people are just turning up the music and just, you know, enjoying the ride until it's over. But people who are paying attention, they want to know who made all this? Where do we come from and why does any of it exist? And for as long as humanity has been aware of God, we've especially wrestled with one thing. What is it that God requires of us? I mean, if there is a God who is all-powerful and made everything, surely he isn't neutral towards us. He's not without opinion. He has certain desires, a certain picture of how he wants us to live, and that if we live that way, certain things are likely to happen in our lives that will be welcome and pleasant. And so we wrestle with this. What is it that God wants from us? Sometimes we shout that into the sky rhetorically. What do you want from me? What do you want from us? We say that especially when we're tempted to give up. But God has answered that question again and again in his word. There have been two main approaches historically to wrestling with God's requirements of us as human beings. On the one hand, there's an approach that wants to multiply rules. And there are certain people, how many of you would, would maybe lean more on the side of type A or OCD or just sort of, you know what I'm talking about? <clears throat> yeah, I, I'm, I tend to fall a little on that side. So there's this desire to control a lot of things, to manage, to monitor. And so people on that side of the aisle often like to multiply rules so that they can be sure where they stand. The question being, if God requires things of us, we want to articulate a rule for every possible situation so that there's never any vagueness or confusion. That if God expects things of us, we want to know everything God expects of us in every situation so that we can monitor how we're doing. There are certain kids who if you say, hey, try to do better in school, they're like, what? But if you say, hey, try to get 30 gold stars before the end of the week, they're like, okay, great. I can measure this now. I know where I stand. I can monitor my progress, and we need that. So some people have really tried hard to multiply rules so that we can say, how are you doing? What's your GPA, your, your God point average, right? Are you doing well? Well, if I check off all the boxes, I at least know where I stand with God. There's 30 rules. I kept 30 rules. I'm doing pretty good. And then there's another approach, which is maybe if that's the multiply side, we call this the reduce side. These are the free spirits. These are the ones who deal in abstract realities. And I'm not saying anything critical of either side. What I'm saying is it's interesting how humanity tends to fall on either side of that. And people on the reduce side say, look, let's not sweat all the details. Do you really think God is up there like some grand IRS auditor in the cosmos? Just going, oh, they said a bad word. Oh, my Lord, now look who they're sleeping with. And, and there's a desire to say, God cannot be up there sweating all that little stuff in light of all the garbage that's happening down here. What we're missing is the forest for the trees. We're so concerned about every tiny little nuance of every little rule and monitoring our progress, and we've missed the big thing. God wants us to be different to be loving, to be decent to each other, to be kind. So it, the desire on this side of the aisle is to distill all the rules into one or two simple rules of life. If you forget everything else, do this. Do you see that there is value and virtue on both sides of that equation? And in the midst of that, Jesus enters the scene and he gives us one of these rules of life. 
a summation, a a thing that he says is if you're confused about all the little things, by the time of Jesus, there were close to 700 specific commandments that Jews were responsible to obey before God. That's a lot of stuff to keep track of. It, it, to be a Jew in Jesus' days the way I feel when I try to golf, and I've got a veteran golfer breathing down my neck going, okay, so remember, you've got to turn your wrist this way. And, you, and I'm like, how does anyone golf? I can't think of 80,000 little tweaks all at once while I swing and try to hit a little ball. It's too much. And at some point when I'm golfing with someone who knows what they're doing, they're giving me all this advice, I just go, stop. I'm going to look bad and I'm going to have a bad result, but I'm just going to hit this the best way I know because I'm never going to be that good. When you have too many little things to keep track of, the most sane human response is to be overwhelmed and just quit. I can't. It's too much. And so Jesus, understanding something of that, enters his own entry into these summations, this rule of life. Now, he wasn't the first to do this. There were others who were doing this. In fact, some 600 years before Jesus' time, Confucius was making lots of little statements like this. And closer to the time of Jesus, there was a leader, a Jewish leader, who was probably the most influential liberal voice in Judaism around the time that Jesus was alive on the earth. His name was Rabbi Hillel, and he, was, he stood opposed to and debated constantly with another rabbi named Rabbi Shammai. So Hillel versus Shammai is sort of the left and right, blue and red tension in early Judaism around the time of Jesus. And Rabbi Hillel was once asked by someone, and this, you know, the Jews had an interesting way of putting things. Somebody came up to him and said, hey, can you teach us the whole law of Moses while standing on one leg? So if you said I had to give this sermon standing on one leg, I would edit greatly. I would reduce it to a shorter thing because that's not easy to do. The whole challenge, of course, was can you take the entire complex law of Moses and give it to us in a nutshell? And here's what Rabbi Hillel famously said. Let me flip that so you can read along with me. What is hateful to you, do not do to anyone else. This is the whole law. All the rest is only commentary. Do you catch that? So Rabbi Hillel was entering his own version of the golden rule, which is, if you would not want it done to you, don't be a jerk. Don't do it to other people. I remember... um, once hearing a sermon on the golden rule, and afterwards, someone came up to me, and I don't know why this stuck with me for so many years. I think this must have been 15 years ago they said this, but they said, it sounds like such a small thing, but here's one of the ways I felt really convicted to practice this. You know how you go to a public bathroom, and the floor, I don't know why public bathrooms, especially the men's side, I don't know about ladies, but the floor is always wet. What is that moisture, right? It's always wet. And so you're, the bottom of your feet are disgusting, and then nobody wants to touch the flusher in a public, like a gas station bathroom. So we sometimes do this. We use our foot, and, like, and we flush it. And they said, I do that all the time because I don't want my hands to get dirty. But then I thought, as I was listening to the sermon, someone else is going to come in after me and touch that flusher with their hand, and they're going to get all the germs from the floor that I put with my foot. And that's just really cruel to do to someone else. I feel really bad. So I'm never going to do that again. I'm going to flush with my hands from now on and then just wash my hands thoroughly after. I thought, huh, what an interesting application of that sermon. <clears throat> but you know what's so funny is certain things like a, a worm burrow their way into your mind and never leave you. Ever since that person said that, I have been so conscious of flushing public toilets with my hands. And there are days when it's so nasty, I'm like, no way. I'm... And, and yet, that just sticks with me. If I don't want it done to me, I'm not going to do it to someone else. Now, Rabbi Hillel's contribution is actually very strong and valid and important. This is one side of the equation. It's very important that we must work hard at not doing to other people the foul things we hate being done to us. Now, we all nod our heads, but it's surprising what a massive blind spot exists for most human beings in this area. We are so articulate in in describing all the junk people do to us. I hate when people do this. 
I hate when they do this to me. I hate when, and we're so articulate, but we don't realize how often in our pain and frustration, we're doing those exact same things to other people without realizing it. And I say we because I'm not saying you. I mean we, all of us. It's a massive blind spot, and it needs to be said, the bad things you don't want others to do to you, don't do it to them. If you don't enjoy being painted with a broad brush, being stereotyped, typecast, figured out from a distance, don't do it to other people. That's a really important contribution. But notice it's negatively stated as a prohibition. It puts all the emphasis and focus on the offense we don't want to cause others, the hurt we don't want to give to others. And that's important, but it's only half the picture of righteousness. So Jesus gives us the golden rule, and here's how he says it. He flips it around and adds another dimension. He says it's good that we don't do to others the evil we don't want done to us. But let me give you another side of that picture. Proactively, intentionally do to other people the good that you wish they would do to you. That's important because you see that it may sound like two sides of the same coin, and maybe they are, but it's two very distinct, different statements. And both make an important contribution to our understanding how does a person walk righteously before God with other human beings. So the golden rule is this. Don't just avoid causing harm to others. Actively be committed to doing good to others, the kind of good that you would want them to do to you. In other words, it's not enough to keep your hands clean of causing pain to other people. We must also use our hands actively to render good to other people. The same kind of good we wish people around us would take the time and make the effort to do for us, we need to learn to do for them. I've seen many lonely people who try to break into a group and no one is welcoming them in. But when they become insiders, they find themselves doing the exact same thing. And so we have to constantly be reminded how short our memories are, how selfish our hearts can be. And we have to remember we must work very hard at rendering to others the good which we long for them to do for us. Jesus says further, this simple rule for living sums up everything that Moses said in the law and all the prophets said to you throughout your history. Do you realize what a massive statement that is? Jesus is basically going, this is the cliff notes of everything God wants you to think about with respect to your dealings with other people. If you want to know how God wants us to live with one another, You can cut through all the hundreds of pages of everything else ever written or spoken and distill it to this one simple statement, do to others the good that you would want them to do to you. However, because I have a devious mind, I thought of a loophole. If the obligation on me is to do to others the good that I want them to do to me, I can wiggle my way out of that obligation by just lowering my expectations of everyone else. I don't want you guys to do anything for me. I don't need you. I'll take care of me. You take care of you. So I don't expect you to do any. I don't want you to do any good to me. I'm not going to do any good to you either. And obviously, the safest and easiest way to stay within the parameters of the golden rule will be to be a hermit, to withdraw completely from society and just say, I am living in perfect harmony with the community of one. It's just me, myself, and I, me and my two roommates, right? And as long as I withdraw into isolation and take care of just me and the people I care about, I'm okay. But Jesus does not allow that. There's no picture of Christianity that is intelligible in the context of isolation. In other words, you can't really be a Christian in the full sense of the word in isolation. Because the Christian faith is meant to be experienced and practiced in the context of relationships with other human beings and in the context of a relationship with God. So we have to turn to another passage in which Jesus made a similar statement about this sums up everything that the Bible has said. In Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40, 
Jesus gave another teaching, which has come to be known as the Great Commandments or the Greatest Commandments. A teacher of the law wanted to challenge him and said, hey, all the rabbis in our life, in our world, debate about this endlessly. What do you have to say on the matter? And they asked him, what is the greatest command that God would give to human beings? The thing he wants from us more than any other thing. And here's how Jesus replied. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. What that means, the second is like it, is not that it's just similar, but you can't separate these two. They're not a distant first and second. They're just right there. God wants both of these as a package deal. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor the same way you love yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. So if we, if we here's a nice SAT word, if we juxtapose... You never thought we'd actually use that word in real life, right, when you took the ACT? But if we put the golden rule next to the greatest commandments, here's the picture that emerges. That what God has said in all of the law and all the prophets and all of Scripture is simply this. That in your interactions with everyone else and with God himself... Do good to others that you would want done to you. And the definition of that good is what is the most loving thing you can do. The most truly loving thing you can do. In other words, if you want to live faithfully according to the standard God has set for us, each of us has to function in our world as a multiplier of love versus all other things. So I know that sounds like a a real... Um, wishy-washy, sort of like feel, touchy-feely statement, but pause and think about this. Each one of us right now sitting here lives in the context of relationships. There are people who know us, care about us, are deeply affected by our lives. Brothers and sisters, friends, neighbors, cousins, teachers, classmates, co-workers. People whose lives are all entwined with ours and the things we say and do affect them and vice versa. And pause and just ask yourself. I'm not challenging or rebuking anyone. I want you to just reflect on this question. What would the people in your life that are closest to you say about you and the effect you have on them? Are you a love multiplier or are you multiplying something else in this world in the atmosphere around you? What effect does your life have on the lives of people closest to you in proximity? I've been thinking about that this week. Um, Three of us, we went to Haiti this week, and as, you know, I'm walking around just hugging and touching these kids that are just, they have nothing, and I thought, what comes out of me in a setting like this? I can put on the, the sort of missionary face and go, hi, and I, that, that smile, you know, like politicians, they do this. and they, like, I can put that face on, but what is coming out of me, really? What is being in a place like this awakening me, and how do people who have never met me before experience me in relationship? And I realize it's important to monitor that all the time because we think we have this certain effect on people. Oh, everyone loves me. I'm the life of the party. I'm positive. Where oh, no, no not, not as much as you probably think. You probably don't have as positive an impact on people as you think, and I know I don't either. But in order to sleep at night, I've got to see myself a certain way. But Jesus says one of the ways to monitor how you're really doing is to ask, Do you multiply love in the relationship around you? Do people feel more loved? Do they feel more inspired to love others? Do they feel safe around you, cared for, supported, protected? Or do they feel called out, judged, rebuked, condemned? Jesus is not the kind of teacher who tries to soften the blow. When something is necessarily heavy, he lets the weight of it just hang there. And in the golden rule, he begins with these two very heavy words, so in everything, live this way. 
the scope, the weight of those words in everything just is left hanging there. It's not supposed to be simple or easy to live in this world, interacting with other people according to this high standard Jesus is setting. In every situation, in every relationship, this is the standard Jesus sets. This is the stick that he says, you must be this tall to ride. This is what he wants from us, is in every situation, struggle to think, what is the most loving thing I can do in the life of this other person? And the weight of that starts to feel heavy after a while, doesn't it? Because a lot of the people I'm really trying to love aren't so lovable back towards me. How many of you would agree? <laughs> I mean, don't, don't just complain about it in the back channels. This is your chance to probably go, yeah. Some of the people we're supposed to love suck. They're terrible. They, at every opportunity, get in our face and make it impossible to love them. Why do they do that? I don't know. But I bet you we've done it to people too. And he lets the weight of that just hang there. We're supposed to do what is most loving, but not everybody will help us to do that. So how am I supposed to live like this for the rest of my life with the rest of the human race? And as the weight of that begins to really crush itself on me, I'm reminded of this. Jesus can give a heavy command like that because he's already given us two really important gifts that will help us bear the weight of that burden for the rest of our lives. I want you to look at a passage of scripture and really pay attention to the words of the gospel. In Titus 3, 3 to 6, here's what Paul describes as what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. Once we too were foolish and disobedient, we were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated each other. But when God, our Savior, revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So when we look at the gospel, what we realize is he has already given us two very important gifts that help us bear the burden of the golden rule in our lives. And the first is that he's given us a new operating system in our soul, a new spiritual operating system. How many of you are techies and you get excited when your computer platform issues a brand new operating system? Am I the only one? I get very excited when a new operating system update comes out. I'm like, ooh, I can't wait to see what's changed. The disappointing thing, though, is that sometimes when you have a major operating system change, the old stuff doesn't work. But the encouraging thing is all the new stuff works really well. And what he's saying is you used to have an old operating system. There were passions and impulses that came out of you, and you had no power over those things. They had all power over you. When you felt lustful, it controlled you. When you felt angry, it controlled you. When a violent streak rose up out of you, you were powerless to control it. When you wanted something, you were tempted to steal it. It's what you did because these feelings were so strong and raw, and there was no second voice inside of you. There was no freedom. What you felt, you were compelled to do because once your operating system was enslaved to every feeling and every passion that gripped your heart. In the same way as the rest of the animal kingdom, we once were enslaved to and fully obedient to our fleshly bodies. And whatever it wanted, we gave it. And he says, I have given you something new. I have put a new spirit, a new birth, a new life inside of you so that you don't just have to learn new behaviors, but real transformation, real change from the inside out is now possible because I've rewritten the operating system in your spirit. 
This is so important for us to understand because so many people in the church simply try to learn a new way of behaving, but they've given up on the hope that I can actually be a different person inside. What Jesus did for us through the gospel is he rewrote the operating system upon which our human spirits operate, and he said that real change, real transformation is possible. You don't just learn how to act more loving. You can actually become a truly more loving human being because of what he's done. He's also given us another very important gift, perhaps the more important gift, is that he has saved us and accepted us not because of righteous things we did, but because of his mercy. What he means by that is his, our standing with him and his acceptance of us don't depend on how well we do with this golden rule thing. Have any of you seen this, this TV series called The Good Place? Anyone? Okay, so I caught the pilot episode yesterday because someone told me it's about a a worldly view of the afterlife. That's very interesting to me. I want to see this. And it's basically this, if you're good stuff, there's some algorithm, you get a number. And if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you make it to the good place. They don't really talk much about the other place. But there's no heaven. He goes, heaven and hell is not quite the way it works. There's a good place and only the very best cream of the crop get there. And everyone else goes to the other place. I think that's the way most of us think it works, is here's this golden rule, be decent to people, don't be a jerk, don't do to other people the foul things you hate being done to you, and instead do to other people the good things you wish they would do to you, and if we live that way, we keep accruing a score and level up, and eventually, like the top 50 players in the world, get to the good place, the winner's circle. That's the way I think, and it's a very sane and understandable way of thinking about it, but that's not at all the way the gospel works. The way the gospel works is everything depends on his acceptance of us because he's merciful. We're not saved because we've done a good job with the golden rule. We're saved so that we can do a good job with the golden rule. So the pressure of auditioning for heaven is taken off the table. We're accepted because he loves us, because he's merciful. So I can spend the rest of my life struggling to learn how to love imperfect people as an imperfect person because I'm not auditioning for anything. I've made the team. I'm on the cast. I survived the cuts. And because of that freedom, I can bear this weight for the whole of my life because my eternal destiny doesn't hang in the balance. It's not what's being decided by how I do with other people. Are you with me? This is so important to understand because if we don't understand it, Christianity will suck the life out of us. It will be the worst possible way to arrange your life if you don't understand the way the gospel truly works. I'm going to close with a practical response. If this is the golden rule, how do I put it into practice in my daily life? And so I, in my mind, when I was writing the sermon, I put together this decision tree, like some kind of flow chart, and I want to work through that really quickly with you. The first step is to reflect, because everything in the golden rule is predicated on this. What is it you want done to you? Now, most of us can articulate that quite well. Here's how I wish people would treat me right now in my life, in my situation. That's good. It's important to reflect on that to be able to articulate it. Do you know what you want from the world right now? How you want the people closest to you to treat you in your present situation? Can you articulate it? Most of us can. We spend a great deal of time and energy thinking about those things and talking about those things with other people. Isn't that true? None of you like public speaking, right? But if I asked each one of you to take this mic and just share with us openly... How do you want people to treat you right now? We could all probably have something intelligent and meaningful to say about that. But the reflection comes in saying, how do I step out of my shoes, and now as I deal with this other person, often this other person who is causing me a great deal of frustration and pain, how do I think about what I would want if I were in their side of this equation? If I stepped out of my shoes into their shoes, what is it I would want if I were them? I find that much more difficult to do as a mental exercise. But the truth is, so many relationships are stuck in a place of frustrating brokenness because we really have not developed this ability to step out of our shoes and into the shoes of another person.
I know how you make me feel over and over and over. And until that changes, I cannot step into your shoes because my shoes are so unbelievably painful to stand in. And we don't realize that because we stay stuck and rooted in only our shoes, we continue to escalate and to stay stuck in cycles of conflict with people that we actually care about. And so I want to encourage you to make this a regular practice in your, in your reflection. If I were that person, in all their imperfections, all their wrong things, but if I was in their shoes, how would I want me to talk to me and to interact with me right now? If you're the parent of a child, especially an older child, I really want you to pause and think about that too. Because so often as our kids are learning how to be human beings, they do a lot of really bad and dumb things, frustrating things. And sometimes you have to say the same correction, how many, like 50, 80, 1,000 times. Please, please don't do that. And sometimes you just get so frustrated, you just want to scorch the earth. You don't want to correct them, you just want to destroy them. Pause and think about if you were them in the midst of that frustration that you're bearing, how would you want to be spoken to? How would you want to be handled? Because if we could just do that on a regular basis, it would start to shape the way we interact with people, even when the relationship is broken and we're in pain and frustration. Second, we got to make a decision to act. Now that I've thought about what it is I would want if I were in their shoes, I have to make a decision to do something in response to this relationship and this situation. And I think there are at least three possibilities here, okay? One is do what is good and do it well. If I find, all right, if I were in their shoes, I would want this good, nice thing to be done to me. Just do it. If, if I wanted somebody to send me a care package because it was my first semester in college and I was really lonely, I would want someone to do that for me, so I'm going to do that for them. Because I remember my freshman year of college, you know, nobody sent me a care package. It was kind of depressing. I was really lonely. I was a grown young man still kind of crying. And so I would want someone to do that for me. And so if you feel as you reflect on another person in your life, there's this good thing I feel prompted to do, do it. Even if it's something small. If someone actually asks you to do something good for them, do it. But I add this do it well because when it says do to others what you would want done to you, it's not just going through the motions grudgingly or here, there, I I did it. But it's doing it in a way that is actually a gift. Have you ever experienced someone who did something but not in a manner or to an extent that really blessed you? When you said, hey, uh, I, I've been out of town. There's just been a whole flurry of emails about this, this volatile situation. Can you bring me up to speed? And they go, sure. And then they just forward you the most recent email. And now they're like, here, you read three weeks worth of volatile emails. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, thanks for almost next to nothing. <laughs> I asked you to catch me up, and you just forward. It cost you like three seconds of clicking. Here, you do it. What if instead they had process distilled and just given me a summary of really what, what's really happening, and then if I wanted more, I could read it? That would be a gift to me, because that's really what I was asking for, right, is could you catch me up? If you say, hey, could you uh, mow the lawn, and, you're like, and it's like it's all like some drunk person mowed it, it's in weird shape, that's not really a gift. You're doing it, but you're doing it, and the whole time you're doing it, you're making a person who asks you to do it feel guilty for asking you. you get, we can go on and on with examples. There's a lot of good we do for others, but in a manner and to an extent that doesn't really feel like a gift. It feels like a drudgery, and that's not really at the heart of what Jesus is describing. The manner and extent, and part of that is the joy and enthusiasm with which we do it. Have you ever had someone do you a favor, but you felt like you needed to write them a letter of apology after they did it for you? Because it looks so hard for them. Here's a good example. You ask your friends to help you move. And they're like, oh my God, why do you have such heavy furniture? Why don't you get a fourth floor apartment? Oh my God, do you really play this piano that much? Do you, can we possibly just goodwill it? Or, and the whole time, you're like, wow, I, I asked you to help me move. But the whole time, I just feel like yucky about the way you're helping me. 
Sometimes it's simply a matter of going that extra mile, that little extra touch. You know what I mean? Like certain people, when they do you a favor, they put a bow on it. Do you know what I'm saying? Like they, they, they do a little extra. So you're like, wow, you didn't just do something. You did it in a way that you wanted me to feel the genuine love and servanthood with which you did this for me. I think that makes a really big difference when we do good for other people. Jesus told a story in Luke 10 of the Good Samaritan. And in that story, it's a wonderful illustration of this principle of doing good in a way that is a real blessing and a gift to people. Because this man went out of his way to find this person who was hurt, and he bound up his wounds, he took care of him, and afterwards, he didn't say, all right, you're not bleeding anymore, sucks to be you, but I got a meeting. Good luck. You know how sometimes you do something, and then you just want to be like, I got to get this gum off my shoe, I, I can't let you stick to me. I've done something for you. Can you now please go and burden the next person in line? See you later. I I felt that before. I'm sure you have too. The Good Samaritan didn't do that. He said, all right, I've I've stopped the worst of the bleeding. We've got to get you to a hospital. The inn or the hotel, which is described in that story, is really more like a place that was equivalent to a hospital in Jesus' culture because there were no hospitals. It's a place where a person, with, if they were given pay, would nurse and minister to a wounded person or a sick person with a great deal of care. And then he put up his own money and said, I want you to make sure this guy gets better. And when I'm done with my business, on the return trip, I'm going to drop in and check in on him. I'm going to follow up and see how he's doing. And if I still owe you a balance, I'll pay that too. Do you get the idea of why this was such an important illustration in Jesus' teaching about how to love another person? is that real love, the kind of love Jesus is describing to us, is not, there I did it, but it's the kind of love that goes above and beyond. It goes all the way to the end in the way that I would want someone to help me. The way I would want someone to help me. So if you feel prompted to do something good for someone else, do that good, but do it well. I was tempted to just write, do good and do it good, but that's the, the grammatical offense of it was more than I could handle. So, <clears throat> Here's the next thing. Sometimes the most loving thing we can do is unpleasant, but it's necessary. I think some people have misapplied the golden rule to mean you can't do anything that is yucky or not pleasant to another person. So your teenage son sets the dog on fire and you're like, I really should say something about that. But the golden rule says, "How would I, if I set our dog on fire, I won't want people to just leave me alone and let me figure out why I did that on my own. You can't do that. Sometimes when a child is setting dogs on fire, you got to step in and, you, you, honey, sweetheart, you really can't set dogs on fire. It's immoral and it's illegal and something's not right inside your head. Amen? So sometimes, as you reflect on what I must do in a person's life, the most loving thing will end up not being a pleasant or welcome thing. Most of us at that point will say, I'm just not going to get involved. Who needs that extra drama in our lives? But God is raising us up so that whatever we are called to do, even when it is unpleasant and necessary, out of love, we will go there and we will do it. But, and there's always a but, the way we do it matters a great deal. Whenever I'm feeling prompted to do in someone's life what is unpleasant but necessary, the manner in which I do it matters for everything. I remember years ago when I was speaking at a, a Marthama church conference. It was the, the Indian church from which many of our Indian brothers and sisters in our church have come. And I, I remember they did skits better than anyone I'd ever seen in my life. I would look forward to Martha events because the skits were unbelievable. I actually felt like crying. It was the last time you felt like crying at a church event skit, but some of these were so powerful. And one of them, there was, it was depicting a doctor who basically had to give a very difficult treatment to a very nervous little boy. And the boy kept looking at the doctor and saying, is this going to hurt? Are you going to hurt me? And what the doctor said back really stuck with me for many years. He said, I may hurt you, but I will not harm you. 
I will hurt you, but I will not harm you. And here's what I took that to mean, is some of the things we must do in other people's lives will cause a sting. They won't enjoy that process, but it is for their good. It is necessary that they receive it. But we don't need to add to that natural pain of this necessary thing, the bitterness of that pill. We don't need to add our abusive delivery. If someone has to take yucky-tasting medicine, it's not helpful when you go here and you just throw it in their face and say, now lick it off your skin. That, we don't need to add to the bitter pill a bitter way of giving it. How we do it matters. So I, I want you to think about a few things. When you're in the situation where what you have to do in your friend's life, in your sibling's life, in your spouse or your boyfriend, girlfriend, your child, when bad medicine is necessary, think about how you're going to do it. See, I think when we have to challenge someone, that doesn't mean we have to do it with a voice of disdain or disgust or judgment or condemnation. You can say, sweetie, you can't set the dog on fire, but you don't have to say it like, what kind of moron sets dogs on fire? And when you do it like that, it just adds to the truthful, necessary rebuke. Why do you have to say it like I'm, I'm a monster? Like you've never done anything bad or misguided in your life. Can you speak to me in a way that is clear and firm, but that doesn't make me question, are you for me and are you with me? Do you really care about me, or do you just need to vent all this frustration in my direction? I say this not just to you guys. I've been wrestling through this in my own life. And it's something that is not that easy to get a handle on. When we have to deliver a bitter pill... We don't have to add to the pill's bitterness any bitterness of our own. The pill itself will be hard to swallow. But a little bit of sugar helps the medicine go down. That's a thing, isn't it? And what medium will I use? You don't break up with someone through a text message. Young people, you don't break up with someone through a text message. Look them in the eye, face to face, say the words. It's over. Don't type, it's over, LOL. (laughs) Don't do that. The medium matters. How you do a thing matters. What about who? Even if something has to be done, are you the best person to do it? Let me give you a silly illustration. I was at a shopping mall, and I saw this girl across the way. We were walking, you know, kind of towards each other, and I know she was wearing white jeans and had flaming pink panties on. I knew this because her fly was just wide open. Like, what are you doing? I don't normally look in the nether regions, but when you got white jeans and hot pink panties on, and it's just like, you know, so I'm like, wow, that girl is, she needs to know that's happening right now. But I thought, if a strange dude walks up to the mall and goes, oh, I couldn't help but noticing your panties, that's a little, oh, it's yucky. So I found another lady nearby and said, hey, listen, I know I don't know you, but see that girl over there? Someone's got it. You know what I'm saying? And she's like, good call. And she walked over and said, hey, sis. And she's still like this so that girl could do it. And it helped because sometimes the person who spots a thing is not always the best person to deal with the thing. You should ask yourself, am I the right person, the best person to deliver this bitter pill? And maybe you are, but am I in the best frame of mind to do it right now? So that's a, that's the third question, is when? Is this really the best timing for me to do this? Is this the right situation, the right sequence of events? Should I wait? How long is too long to wait? I don't know if there's ever a perfect time to deliver a bitter pill, but at least we've got to wrestle through the question. And finally, Where? I had to add this one because I've had some people challenge me in the wrong way. Like, I'm glad you're talking to me about this, but why, why in front of everybody? And we sometimes do this in, in married couples. We don't want to deal with our, our frustrations at home because we're like, uh, so when we're, maybe, maybe when you're at a dinner party, maybe if you've had your second glass of wine, you're like, oh yeah, sure. I'm gonna, I'm, he's going to really fix, fix the car now because he's so good with fixing things. And, you say little things to throw your, your mate under the bus. <laughs> okay, whatever. 
and you're trying to get the whole group to collude with you be like, yeah, hey, buddy, you got to take better care of things at home. Your wife is clearly dissatisfied. And you want to say to your wife, why are you doing it like that? Why are you doing it in a way as if to out me in front of our friends, to embarrass me in public, to use this, this very intimate forum to air our dirty laundry to get people on your side? Why are you doing that? I'm willing to hear you, but this is not the right place to deal with that issue. This is not the right time. It's not the right place. It's not the right way. You've got to stop doing that, honey. Because when you do it, my heart shuts down big time. We don't repair people we've embarrassed. We don't repair people we have condemned and judged. And so it's important that when we are compelled out of love to deliver bitter medicine to a person we care about, we have to really wrestle through these questions of how and who and when and where. You may not come up with the perfect time or situation, but we have to wrestle through it because when we have to be the bearer of something difficult, we should not add to that difficult thing our own abrasiveness and bitterness. And, of course, the third possibility is sometimes you want to do something unpleasant, and it's totally not helpful or necessary. It just makes you feel a little better. <clears throat> My advice to you is just don't do it. Just don't ever do it. If what you want to do is unpleasant, and you know in your heart it's not going to be helpful, and it's really not necessary, but it's going to make you feel a little better, don't do it. I, I use... Somebody, somebody in the church always tells me, hey, congratulations, you didn't say anything about pooping or peeing or farting this time. I'm going to do it now because I just find this analogy to be so instructive of spiritual dynamics. And that's the familiar thing, I, my go-to thing of farting in elevators. Maybe you've just got this big one just brewing the whole ride to the 50th floor. Oh, man. A decent person, though they want to let it out right there, will wait until they walk off the elevator, go about 50 feet down the hall, and when no one's looking, you just kind of go, that's the right thing. You feel it. you got to get it out. But if it's not going to help the other people around you, just don't do it. Because I think sometimes we do that. You know what? I just got to get this off my chest. And we just do that, and everyone's like... The mood all just changed. <laughs> everything here feels different and it smells terrible. You ruined it. You ruined everything. Why did you do that? I don't know. It's just, it was building up in me and I just had to let it out. But why did you do it here and like that? I don't know. And when we do that, there may be a real issue standing behind it, but we have in some ways nullified our ability to deal with that issue ever again. If what you want to do is unpleasant and it's born out of just a desire to vent or to express frustration, if it's born out of a spirit of judgment and condemnation over another person, the best course of action is to not do it. Even if you think it's necessary, if you know it's not, don't do it. Because it's very likely that that impulse does not come from God at all. But it comes from God's enemy who loves to destroy everything good. And if you vent the way you're tempted to vent, this very thing you want to do will be undermined. Let me wrap up this way. If the golden rule is properly applied, it would diffuse the tension and conflict in so many relationships almost right away. If we could really take to heart what the golden rule is teaching and apply it properly, it would repair so many relationships. You might be in a relationship right now where it feels like there is no hope at all. Well, I can't see this ever getting any better. And I want to tell you that one of the ways God has given us to climb out of that place of hopelessness is this simple principle. Do to others what you would want them to do to you. 
Reflect on if you were in their shoes and not your own, how would you want to be spoken to and dealt with? And then do things that are necessary, but do them in a way that can be received. It's important to remember that the golden rule is still a rule. It's not the golden suggestion. It's not the golden option. But he says, this for it to work must be a response to my authority as your Savior. That's how Jesus is speaking. I think we live in times where we want and even demand from God his benefits and his support, but we're losing, as a people of God, we're really losing our sense of obligation towards him. God has all these obligations towards us. God, show up, man. Where are you? You're supposed to do this for me. You're supposed to do this for me. But we're really losing that real sense of, I also have obligations to this God. And if I want to invite his help in a difficult relationship, at the very least, I have to start by honoring him in that relationship. I have to conduct myself in that relationship according to the high and difficult standard he set for me. Because what I'm asking is not that he would help me win the fight, but that he would help me win that person. That person that you're locked in conflict with is a person you really love. We don't stay in conflict with people we don't love. We just throw them away and move on. But the people we really love, it hurts us that we're not better. And we stay locked in that conflict for years and years because in the end, that's what is happening is I love you and I'm so grieved we've lost it. And I can't just let it go. I want something back that we've lost. And Jesus tells us the golden rule is that way forward. So I want to encourage you to give this principle some serious reflection. I try to make it as clear as I've been able to make it, but I think God has things to say to each of us in the specific situation in which we find ourselves. So I want to encourage you to open up your scripture this week and dwell in that verse for a while. And think about the relationships that mean the most to you. Start with the ones that are the most disappointing and heartbreaking for you. The relationships that once used to be so wonderful and life-giving and have just soured over the years and started to drain the life out of you. And say, Jesus, what would it look like for me in this relationship that's broken to live according to this rule that you've given? Help me to understand it. Give me the grace to do it the right way. And then as I honor you in this, come and help us. Come and help us. We need your help. I'm going to invite the band to make their way back up here. And as they do, I'm going to invite you to just bow your heads with me. If you're sitting next to someone you deeply care about and you feel led to do it, go ahead and you can hold hands with each other, whatever you want to do. But I don't think this is a message um, that should just run off our back, bounce off our exterior. Because I think it addresses the very place where some of us are stuck, where we're living right now. This is my life. There's this person that I gave my heart to. They affect me so deeply. I used to enjoy real love with this person. Something changed over the years, and I feel so defeated and helpless. And the reason we're still locking horns is because I can't let go of what I feel. I love this person. I'm angry at them. I'm disappointed with them. I am so at the end of my rope, but I desperately grieve what I've lost. And I wish there were a way to get it back. Maybe that's where you are right now. Into that hopelessness, Jesus introduces hope. He says, there is nothing that is finished if you acknowledge his power, his presence, his life in you. So I'll leave it there. And in this quiet, I'm going to invite you to bring your relationships before him and pray for them and pray for yourself. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. 
you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.